Welcome to the New to Jesus podcast, where we find foundational truths to help you take your first steps in your walk with Christ. Hey, welcome back to the New to Jesus podcast. In this episode, we're going to continue our Bible study in the book of John with John chapter 10. Now, to get us back on track, Jesus is still in Jerusalem after the Feast of Tabernacles. In chapter 9, we saw him heal a blind man in dispute with the Pharisees about Moses. He continues in John 10, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is beginning to speak to them about his authority and his position as the good shepherd. Now, Is there another way to eternal life? Is there more than one way? There's people that like to say that you have your way, I have mine, we all have a different way unto God. Jesus says in John 14, a couple chapters ahead of this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus is saying that the way that we get to heaven, the way that people get forgiveness and the ability to go to the Father after they die, the way that they gain eternal life is only through him. Jesus says in verse 3, To him the porter openeth. And the porter is another word for doorkeeper. To him the porter openeth. I'm not sure if you have people at your church that are greeters or people that would open the door as people are walking in. That's kind of like what this is. To him, to the shepherd of the sheep, the porter openeth. And the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but flee from him. For they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. There's a couple of different things here in verses 1 through 5. Number one, Jesus is getting them to realize or trying to get them to realize that those that are his, those that believe him and trust in him, They know that his voice is authentic and true. But those that are skeptical and unbelieving, they're going to miss the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. There was a lot of different people in Jesus' day who were Jewish that rejected him, that rejected his Messiahship, that chose not to believe in him and not to receive him as their Messiah and Savior. But there was also a great many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day that did believe him and chose to follow him. And in verses 3 through 5, Jesus is contrasting these two groups. And then in verse 6, it says, This parable spake Jesus unto them, this illustration, this story, but they understood not which things they were which he spake unto them, because their heart wasn't right. The people that Jesus was speaking to immediately in this passage 
were those that chose not to believe him, not to listen to him, not to believe that what he was saying was true. And so they missed the meaning entirely. Now, we're going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail that has to do with some of the things that we read in verses 1 through 5. Every once in a while, we see the amazing wisdom and power of God without even looking for it. An example of this is when seemingly relatively ordinary verses come together to show us something that only God himself could orchestrate. Now, if you have your Bible with you, turn over to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. To give you some background about this, and I like to call this the porter lesson. Remember how I was talking about what porters were? in the previous verses in John chapter 10. Number 16 is three chapters after the 12 spies are sent out to search the land of Canaan. For the last couple of chapters, Moses has been relaying various commands of the Lord to the people. In verses one through three, we see the rebellion of the people. Now this might seem like, Dan, why are you going on this rabbit trail? Why are you talking about this? Just stick with me, because there is a very important lesson near the end. So the rebellion of the people in verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took men. Now, the Kohathites, the sons of Kohath, were to bear the articles of the tabernacle. That was their job. They were supposed to be carrying the different things that were to be on the interior of the tabernacle. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So these guys, in verse 1, they get all these different people together that were like celebrities in the community of Israel. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above, above the congregation of the Lord. So these people are challenging the authority of Moses and Aaron. In verse 4, Moses hears it, and he falls upon his face. And he spake unto Korah, and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who are holy, and who will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom the Lord hath chosen, he will cause to come near unto him. This do, take you censers, Korah, and all his company. Now a censer was kind of like a bucket that would have burning incense inside of it. And they're saying, we want to be the ones that the Lord uses to lead the people. You, Moses and Aaron, you just don't know what you're doing. You're taking too much upon you. Let us do it. Now, previously, God had specifically chosen Moses and Aaron. So these sons of Korah, they're going against Moses. They're going against Aaron. And in reality, they're going against the leadership and authority of God himself. And Moses says, it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. You take too much upon you, ye sons of Levi. 
And Moses said unto Korah, Hear, I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause both you and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? And so Moses is really just kind of putting them in their place. And then Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, hast thou not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards? Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. So these guys, they were throwing a temper tantrum. They were being rebellious against Moses' leadership, and they were refusing even to come before him. The children of Israel and the ten spies, with the evil report, refused to go into the land. It was not Moses' fault. It was because of the unbelief of the people that God did not allow them to go into the land. Verse 15, Moses was very wroth, very angry, and he said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass or donkey from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou in all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow, and take every man a censer, and put incense in them, and bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, 250 censers, thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. And they took every man his censer and put fire in them. This is the test. They're going through with what Moses told them to do. And laid incense thereon, and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. So this is going down, okay? This showdown between Moses and Aaron and all of these 250 celebrities in Israel that were trying to take away Moses' authority and leadership. And then in verse 20, The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate you, separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Byram. Get, get away from their tent. And Moses rose up unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. I want you to remember that phrase. He's saying, get away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, hereby shall ye know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, 
and they go down quick into the pit, then shall you understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained unto them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning, and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hollowed, meaning holy. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, therefore they are hollowed, they are holy. And they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel, a reminder. And Eleazar the priest took the brazen censers, wherewith they that were burnt had offered, and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar, to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. Now, that seems like a kind of crazy, traumatic event, right? All of this stuff happens to all of the family of Korah, it seems, right? Well, I want to share with you the rest of the story. You might think, boy, that's, that's really harsh. I mean, all those little children, okay, the little ones were there as well. Did they get swallowed up into the pit along with all these other wicked people? Well, in Numbers 26, verse 9, listen closely. And the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram, that is that Dathan and Abiram, which were famous in the congregation, who strove against Moses and against Aaron and the company of Korah. Remember that? We just read about it. When they strove against the Lord, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah, When that company died, what time the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign, a reminder? Listen to this. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. The children, the little ones, they survived. Now what happened to them? If we turn over in our Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 26, we read in verse 1, concerning the divisions of the porters. Remember how we're talking about the sheepfold and that the porter openeth the door unto the shepherd? Remember the porter is another word for the doorkeeper? It says... In 1 Chronicles 26.1, concerning the divisions of the porters, the doorkeepers, of the Korhites, was Meshlemiah, the son of Korah, of the sons of Asaph. 
what happened to those kids that survived that crazy traumatic thing where all of those people were swallowed up by the earth or killed with fire that came out of the earth because of their rebellion against God? What happened to the kids? Well, Numbers 26, they survived. The kids didn't die. First Chronicles 26.1 tells us that they became porters. Porters where? Porters in the service of the tabernacle and the temple. I want to read to you Psalm 84. Now in our Bibles, oftentimes in the book of Psalms, there is a description, an introduction, which we kind of separate from the psalm, but in the Hebrew, it's actually verse 1. And it says, Psalm 84, to the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Now, I want to share with you something in the background of this phrase. In Hebrew, the letter Lamed is oftentimes used to be translated as for or towards, or to, but it's also used and translated with the word of 1,119 times in our Old Testament. So this very well could be translated a psalm of the sons of Korah. This psalm, Psalm 84, may have very well been written by those children that survived those events. It says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Does this sound similar to the, the wicked people that were rebelling against Moses and Aaron? It's like the complete opposite. These guys have their eyes focused on the Lord. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are all they that dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well, the rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah, which means pause. Think about it. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. That can have the idea with king that can have the idea of Messiah. Now, this is, this is the punchline of the whole thing. This is the most amazing part where it just all comes together. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
How amazing is that? It's better on the Lord's side. The end of Psalm 84 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. It's better on the Lord's side. Now, back to John chapter 10, verse 7. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. This is interesting. There have been many false messiahs and ungodly religious leaders before Jesus. Remember who Jesus is speaking to here. He's likely referring to the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as false messiahs. This is clearly paralleled in Ezekiel 34, if you have a chance to look there. Some of these are mentioned in the book of Acts, false messiahs in Jesus' day. Others we read about in the pages of history. Some false messiahs in the New Testament. The apostles are brought before the Jewish council in Jerusalem after preaching and healing in Jesus' name. And the high priest is very upset. The apostles then preach the gospel to the council. The Bible says that they were cut to the heart, those that the apostles were preaching to. And they took counsel to slay them. But in Acts 5.33, Gamaliel, a respected Pharisee and doctor of the law, stands up and he tells the council that if this is of God, it cannot be overthrown. But if not, it will fade away. He continues and gives the following two examples of first century false messiahs. He talks about a guy named Thudas and another guy named Judah of Galilee. He says in Acts 5.37, For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. They kind of just fizzled out. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. You see, these two men and their followers disappeared about as quickly as they came. If it were not for this recorded statement in the book of Acts and the first century Jewish historian Josephus, we'd probably never even hear of them. So during Jesus' day, during the time of the New Testament, there was these two other guys, but these were false messiahs. See, Jesus says, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He says in verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Those who came to the people of Israel before Jesus, given the overall context of John's gospel, were the current Jerusalem rulers, the evil shepherds of Israel. They claimed that they alone were the proper entrance to the sheepfold. They were the door, they say. If someone was to enter, he must come through them. Jesus says that this is most definitely false. He himself is the door, not them. He is the way. 
Whoever enters through him will find refuge, be saved, and sustenance, true life resources. Only Jesus has the good of his sheep in mind, unlike the evil imposters, the Jerusalemite leadership of the Jewish religious crowd. Satan's goal is to kill and destroy. That is what he wants for you. Jesus' goal is to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling, like an intern, okay, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, he seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. This is also an attack against the Jewish religious leaders. Now, here's one specific example of a false messiah. His name was Shabbatai Zvi. He lived in the 1600s. At 22 years old, 1676 in Smyrna, Zvi, a mystic rabbi in training, began declaring that he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. This is in the 1600s, okay? He and his followers were eventually excommunicated from Judaism and exiled from Smyrna by the local rabbinical leadership. This is in the Middle East. When his claims to Messiahship became too bold, he was expelled. Ten years later, in Constantinople, he met a false prophet named Abraham Yachini, who verified Zvi as the Messiah. Yechini is said to have forged a manuscript in archaic characters, which he alleged bore testimony to Shabbatai's Messiahship. This is what it said, what this false prophet wrote about him. I, Abraham, was confined in a cave for 40 years, and I wondered greatly that the time of the miracles did not arrive. Then was heard a voice proclaiming a son will be born in the Hebrew year 5386, the year 1626, to Mordecai Zvi, and he will be called Shabbatai. He will humble the great dragon. He, the true Messiah, will sit upon my throne. This is what Abraham Yechini said in a book called The Great Wisdom of Solomon in 1651. Zvi declared himself the one without end. He met a man known as Nathan of Gaza. Nathan claimed to be the risen Elijah in order to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. This is a false Messiah, Shabbatai Zvi. In 1665, Nathan announced that the Messianic age would begin the following year. Samuel Primo, who became Shabbatai's secretary, directed in the name of the Messiah the following circular to all of the Jews. The first begotten Son of God, Shabbatai Tvi, Messiah and Redeemer of the people of Israel, to all the sons of Israel, peace, since ye have deemed worthy to behold the great day and fulfillment of God's word by the prophets. Your lament and sorrow must be changed into joy, and your fasting into merriment, for ye shall weep no more. Rejoice with song and melody. Change the day formerly spent in sadness and sorrow into a day of jubilee, because I have appeared. In 1666, Shabbatai was taken from Abdos to Adrianople, where the sultan's vizier gave him three choices. Okay, so he's captured in 1666, Shabbatai is. And the sultan gives him three choices. 
subject himself to a trial of his divinity in the form of a volley of arrows, in which, should the archer miss, his divinity would be proven. Okay, so choice number one, have a whole bunch of arrows shot at you. If none of them hit, you're divine. Choice number two, be impaled. It doesn't sound much better. Or choice number three, he could convert to Islam. The next day, September 16th, 1666, Zvi came before the Sultan, cast off his Jewish garb, put on a Turkish turban, and converted to Islam. His wife and approximately 300 families among his followers also converted to Islam. You see what happens to the false messiahs, the false shepherds? Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also must I bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now what does this mean, I have other sheep that are not of this fold? Well, the general application is the mystery of the Gentiles being grafted in, the non-Jews being able to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. This was not revealed in ages past. Gentiles partake of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. They are now one with the Jew in the church. That doesn't mean that they become Jewish. It means that Jew and Gentile are together as one body in the church. Verse 17, Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. See, this is the answer to the age-old question, who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it you and me? Well, the biblical answer is nobody. The biblical answer is that Jesus willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice. No man would take it from him. He would lay it down of himself. Now, verse 19, There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? And others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Remember John chapter 9, when Jesus healed that blind man? Verse 22, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's ports. This is interesting. The feast of the dedication is Hanukkah. Jesus may have been there to take part in the celebration. Maybe we can ask him when we get to heaven, why and how is this going on? Well, the whole idea of Hanukkah Hanukkah means dedication. The whole thing happened in between the ending of our Old Testament and when the Gospels began to be written. It was about 170 years before the birth of Jesus that a wicked king named Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Jerusalem. He took over the temple. He made teaching the Torah, teaching the Jewish Bible, illegal. He put up a statue of himself in the temple, 
and forced some to sacrifice pigs on the altar of the temple to his false god statue. Long story short, the Jewish people were able to eventually defeat the armies of Antiochus and reclaim Jerusalem and reclaim the temple. But they had to rededicate it to the Lord. They had to cleanse it from all of this wickedness that had gone on, all of this uncleanness. And the miracle of Hanukkah is that there was only enough oil in the menorahs, in the temple. There was only enough oil to give enough light for one day. They needed more than one day to properly Levitically cleanse the temple. And miraculously, that one day's worth of oil lasted for eight days. And so when Jesus is going into the temple during the Feast of the Dedication, it's most likely that he's celebrating it as a Jewish person, celebrating the victory of the miracle of Hanukkah. But there is likely roughly two months of time that pass between verse 21 and 22. John 7 and 8 are during the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. John 9 through chapter 10, verse 21, seems to take place on or right around the day after Sukkot ended. The Feast of Dedication is two months later. Verse 24, Then came the Jews round about him and said plainly unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, if thou be the Messiah, tell us plainly. I have a quote here from the Jewish Gospel of John, Discovering Jesus, King of All Israel, by a man named Eli Lazorkin Eisenberg. He says, You see, there was nothing unclear about Jesus' ministry and teaching as he traveled in Israelite Galilee and Samaria, performing signs and making incredible claims. However, he did not come through the officially approved channels, and therefore the Jewish religious leadership in effect said to him, Do the right thing. Don't be a loner. Submit your candidacy for messiahship to us. We are the way. We are the gate. We will decide what to do about it. As we've seen earlier, Jesus refused to submit to the authority of the Judean religious leadership. He maintained their authority was inferior to that of his father. His father had already approved his mission to Israel, and therefore their approval was wholly unnecessary. The reason they did not believe his words was simply that his voice was foreign to them. He was not their shepherd. They belonged to another. Jesus answers, verse 25, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This answers two questions. Can we ever lose our salvation? No. No, no, no. You can never, ever, ever lose it. Can we walk away from it? Can we walk away from our own salvation? That's another resounding no. No man, not even yourself, can pluck you out of Jesus' hand. 
And then he says in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, this is not speaking of all the Jewish people. It's speaking specifically of the Jewish religious leadership in that context. They took up stones again to stone him. They wanted to kill him. And Jesus answers, many good works have I showed you from my Father. Which of these do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus absolutely, absolutely claimed to be God. Jesus answered them in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Now this quote where Jesus says in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are God's, is from Psalm 82. And I'm just going to read Psalm 82 in its entirety to give us the context of this passage that Jesus quotes to them in verse 34. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Salah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness, and the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth for thou shalt inherit all nations. Some people want to explain the phrase, ye are gods, to mean that human beings can be gods, as equal to God in essence. The solution to this misinterpretation of these words is found in the proper interpretation of the word God in Hebrew. It is the word Elohim, which is used of God referring to his office and as a judge and diviner of justice. In the establishment of the office of judge in the Old Testament, men were given the responsibility of representing this office of God. Thus, the usage of the term Elohim would not be confusing to the one who understands that man merely represents Jehovah. In this psalm, however, God is condemning those who had perverted justice and had abused their God-given privilege to hold the office of a judge. The warning given in verse 7 is that though they be gods, quote-unquote, though they hold this honorable office among men to rule over them as God's representative, yet they are but men and will die like all other men. The distinction of other names of God in Scripture can also help to understand this passage better. No other names of God such as Jehovah, El Shaddai, and Yah are ever used of human beings. These names speak of or represent God's essence and attributes of which man shall never partake. This fact is seen in the conclusion to verse 6 where it stated that all of you are children of the Most High, meaning that though they represent God, 
they are held accountable and are responsible to Him for their actions. This psalm is a cry to God for retribution for the injustices that these wicked judges have carried out and mentions God's response as well. This is a study note from the keyword study Bible on Psalm 82.6. There is a contrast being made between Israel's position and his mortality. Verse 1 and verse 8 are speaking of God. Verses 2 through 7 are of Israel. This passage is a condemnation of Israel's unrighteousness. And yet it does say that because of their position, they are called gods, quote-unquote, lowercase. It is also used of judges in Exodus 21.6, 22.8, and 22.9. So is this passage saying that men can become gods? No. It's saying that they represent God to the people. That's why Jesus says in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, they were representing God to the people. And the scripture cannot be broken. Say ye of him of whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. Verse 39, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him, and said, John did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Thanks so much for listening with me through John chapter 10. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the New to Jesus podcast. You can go to our website, newtojesus.com. That's new, the number two, jesus.com. If you'd like to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at danielbergman99. And if you'd like to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, that helps us to get in front of more people to help them take their first steps as new believers in Jesus.